Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from one of our pastors. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm still tag. Still, as far as I know, discipleship pastor here at Gateway. So glad that you're here this morning as we kind of zone on in on uh, Christmas morning. Today, we're going to continue in our series called, uh, And He Shall Be Called, where we're taking a look um, at the passage in Isaiah chapter 9 in the Old Testament, where the prophet uses four different titles to describe uh, the Messiah to come, right? And gives a preview both of his character and his nature, what he will accomplish. Now, uh, this is our third week in the series. If you haven't been able to uh, kind of keep up, I would encourage you uh, to go online to the sermon archive. You can catch up on those. If you're watching online, it's just up there. Uh, click above. So be sure to go back in and, and see how the whole thing uh, works in the goodness that is in our, our sermon series there. Now, I want us to get started by looking at the entire verse, and then we'll kind of hone in on the last name that we'll be looking at uh, today. Uh, and if you've ever heard the, uh, what is it, the oratory, what is it, the Handel's Messiah, right, that classical music thing, you may start to hear this singing in your head. This is one of the famous sections of that Christmas musical, so it may sound familiar, but no, I will not be singing this for you. I know you're disappointed. So let's look at this, Isaiah chapter 9. It says, for a child is born to us and a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. Now, like I said, this is in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah was writing these prophecies about 600 years before the appearance of Christ. And, and what was going on in the country at that time, this was in uh, Judah. So you got the nation of Israel and it's kind of split if you like to play along at home. This is in the southern kingdom of Judah. And Uzziah was the king. Uzziah had been a great king, actually. Um, great economy, like military peace. And as Isaiah starts, he gets into it and Uzziah makes this mistake. He goes to offer incense in the temple of God. And because he oversteps his bounds and he's afflicted with leprosy, ends up dying uh, later on in Isaiah's ministry. And his eventual death then opens up the way for his son to come in who ends up being not so great. So they're at this point in time now where they're in this not so great period. Um, when Isaiah is wondering, the, uh, is writing, the people are wondering like, what is going on? Like these leaders, what is up with our leadership? Like they don't make any sense. Their country, they're wondering about their leadership. What's going on? Huh. Anyway, I wonder what that would feel like. Anyway, so then... When it comes down to the, the nation's relationship with God, there's actually turmoil there too because the people have basically abandoned God altogether. So they're ignoring his word, his directives, how he says they should live. They're turning away from worshiping him and they're going towards um, idols. When you read that in Old Testament, think like little gods, right? Just little things that don't really matter. Um, they're looking for you know, their money, their financial stability. They're turning towards uh, security more than God himself who's taken care of them their whole lives. People have turned from God. Huh. Anyway, okay, so when we get here, 
At this point, Isaiah has spent a lot of his time saying, hey, look, folks, like God has been faithful to you. You need to be faithful to him. Uh, you've rebelled against him, but he's willing uh, to take care of you like he's been doing the whole time. If you're familiar with the prophetic books of the Old Testament, those little ones that kind of come at the end, it's kind of your typical uh, prophetic role. That was the prophet's job was to remind people to say, hey, look, this is what God says. This is where you are. Kind of get back in touch with him. But Isaiah is kind of unique because he points more towards this future redeemer that's going to come and help set things right. Now, we talk about that today as the Messiah. And Isaiah talks so much about this promised redeemer that he's actually referred to as the messianic prophet. There are around 30 plus prophecies that speak directly to this. Now, we know today that Jesus fulfills that role. But even shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, the people at that time were starting to look and go, hey, wait, wait a minute. I think this fits. And the gospel writer Matthew, good Jewish man, goes back in his gospel to make sure that people put all these pieces together and connect the dots, that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was writing about even when it comes to fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy about where the Messiah would come from. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter four. Matthew's writing this in the gospel. He says, Jesus, he went first to Nazareth, uh, then left there, moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah, right? So putting those pieces together. Now, as Pastor Don has shown us these last couple of weeks, the passage that we just looked at in Isaiah 9, um, shows us that the Messiah will have, as we go through those titles, uh, both miraculous uh, knowledge, that, that, that title, Wonderful Counselor, and the power of God, that, the title, Mighty God, both of which were clearly demonstrated um, in Jesus. When it comes to his wisdom, you know, the gospel writers in several occasions say that when he would teach, the people were amazed. Like, and they would say, hey, we've never heard anything like this, not even with our own religious leaders, with our own religious teachers, amazed at what he would do. When it comes to his power, right, very obvious, right? You, first thing you think of are the miracles of what he does. And sometimes when we read the Gospels, we read the Bible, we kind of take our reality filter off and we, we can kind of enter this thing of like, well, yeah, of course, okay, well, yeah, this is the way it was supposed to work. But when it comes to Jesus' miracles, I want you to notice that nowhere in those eyewitness accounts of the Gospels do you find people saying, no, that never really happened, right? If you think about it, they don't ever say, well, he didn't deliver, he didn't do this, he didn't. No, what, what do they say? They go, oh, well, he did that by the power of the devil, right? Which is telling you that Jesus' power was undeniable. They couldn't ignore what he was doing. So today we're going to be talking through the third title that Isaiah gives, um, Everlasting Fathers, how most translations have put it. And what we're, what we're going to see is not only how does Jesus fulfill this prophecy, but that in this title we see things that are of critical importance to us in how we orient and live our lives today. So let's start with the name. Now, it's kind of a little confusing, right? 
Because when you see everlasting father, when I look at that, I'm like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't get this. And I don't know, you know, kind of what your background is when you, you, you understand the, the Trinity and this like, you know, whether it's a boiled egg illustration or it's like water and it's steam and vapor and, and, and liquid and all of that works together. And there's God, three persons in one. But I know that Jesus even referred to God as father. Like, how is he the father? Like, how, how does this all work? Well, part of the difficulty comes that, uh, that this is a translation issue, right? So the Hebrew word that, that most of our Bibles look at as father is more far-reaching than that word. So it's kind of like that, but not quite. Um, when we think of father, we usually think of a parent, maybe a grandparent. But the word that Isaiah is using here is actually better understood as the source, So when we see this everlasting father, what it really means is eternal source. So God, through Isaiah, is speaking to the fact that the Messiah is eternal in nature, which means, obviously, that he is divine. See, Jesus has been in existence from before time began and will be continuing on after human history and all of time is over. Now, the prophet Samuel uh, shared this with King David when God wanted him to know what was going on with his uh, lineage, his descendants. And he talked with David and he said, hey, he said, um, you know, your kingdom shall have no end. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So if you're familiar, again, with the Gospels, this is why you'll see in the front part of a couple of them, the lineage of Jesus as they make this point, go, no, Jesus is fulfilling all that we know that the Messiah is going to be. Now, I said that it's important to understand this because of this. Jesus's eternal and divine nature mean that he's able to provide eternal security for us, right? Because he's eternal, he can do an eternal forever work in us. We need more than just some spiritual guide. We need more than just some self-help teacher because we, folks, are eternal beings. So we need an eternal solution. This is how the Bible says it in Colossians. It says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in him. See, Jesus provides eternal redemption for us. The rescue is from eternal separation, that domain of darkness into God's kingdom. So he's the center point of God's eternal plan to redeem humanity. Now, our culture sometimes, you know, uh, acts as if, you know, all of this is something that that, uh, Christianity is a religion or whatever. We just kind of put this on Jesus, that he never has claimed this. As a matter of fact, I've had several college-age students go, well, you know, Jesus never really claimed divinity for himself. But that's actually, it's not true. Look in Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is talking about his part that he'll be playing in the eternal calendar. It says, when the son of man, this is Jesus talking about himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So Jesus is claiming, hey, I am going to be a part of all of this. Eternal, active, when all of human history finishes up. So the question is, okay, well, what does that mean for our lives? Why is it important to recognize that he's eternal? Why, why would God want us to know this through Isaiah? Now we're going to look at this in Colossians chapter 1, where the Bible kind of lays it out for us. The first place we start is this. We need to trust Jesus with our lives because he created everything. Jesus is not some add-on kind of plan B that God decided he needed to put into place when you know, Adam and Eve did that thing. God wasn't sitting there going, oh man, wow, this really messes things up. Like, how am I going to fix this? Now, Jesus is a part of all of creation, everything that exists, which means that we can trust him. This is how it says in Colossians 1, 15. It says, he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus is completely God. Don't let that that word translated firstborn uh, throw you. We'll see it continue to come up because it's that same idea of Jesus as the source of the originator of everything. So Jesus is the master of all that exists. It's kind of hard to wrap our minds around it. Don't feel bad if you're like, what? Because even Jesus' guys, the disciples, they they had a hard time figuring this out, right? And they spent three years walking with him, doing life together. At one point, Philip, they're hanging out. Philip goes like, okay, so Jesus, like, I think if you could just like show us the father, like, I think that would help. That would be nice. And Jesus, in, uh, we see this in John 14, he says, uh, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is confirming for them and for us, right, that anything we've read in the Old Testament, anything we think about God, that is him. He is eternal, divine and the creator. And the reason this is important, and the reason this leads to trust, is because nobody knows more about anything than the person who created it, right? You know, so I'm putzing around, like if I'm working on, you know, a motorcycle car, whatever, like I want to get the manual from, you know, Honda, okay? My, when my phone breaks down, right, who do I call? Well, I call Apple, because they, created it, right? And they know and understand it the best, even when it makes no sense to me. So I was thinking about this and um, there's this guy, you probably have heard of him, Elon Musk, right? So I think we got a picture of him. Elon Musk is this crazy creative uh, dude who just can't help but do things. So he's done, you know, Tesla, the electric cars, right? And he does rocket ships, and then there you can see he combined them both to blast one of his cars into space. That's not a real person, by the way, just in case you were nervous, right? 
Um, it, it went up, you know, and everything else. And so he just does all this stuff. Well, here's, here's his thing. His thing is that he wants to send people to Mars, right? Why is it always Mars? I mean, I lived through the 70s. I watched all the science fiction movies. Mars is cold and nothing lives there, but I don't know. He wants to go to Mars. So this week, actually a few days ago, he launched an unmanned rocket, right, uh, as a part of this, hey, take me to Mars. And I think we actually have a little bit of video. Let's, let's see what happened. So it goes up and then it comes down, right? Oh, that was it. Yeah, fast, right? It goes up, comes down. Basically, if you want to pretend you were there, just close your eyes. Imagine an orange and yellow fireball, right? Because that's all that was left. Now, here's what I find interesting. Do you know what he sent out to his, his people on social media? This is what he said. Elon Musk said, Mars, here we come, right? After that, like immediately after that. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, uh, no, here we not come. Like, I'm not going on that. I like, if that is your idea of something to be excited about, no, I'm glad I wasn't riding on there. Now, a little bit, little bit later, he followed up, and this is what he said. Basically, that was a, a test flight, right, that wanted to measure certain aspects so that they could continue to hone in on, you know, what they're trying to get set in place to get all of this stuff ready. You see, here's the thing. To me, on the outside, spectacular failure. To him, who knows what he's doing, he's created everything, he's put it all together, he's like, oh man, that was perfect. Folks, that is our lives. Have you figured this out yet? Have you figured this out? We have absolutely no idea what anything means. Welcome to 2020, right? We have no idea what's going on. Think about it. The job you lost, was it good? Was it bad? I don't know. The dating relationship that went bad, was that a good thing? The dating relationship that went well, was that a bad thing? Who knows? Our past mistakes, our future opportunities, what do they mean? This year should teach us. We have no idea. But Jesus does, right? Because he can see behind the curtain, so to speak. We can trust him. I think this is why... Paul wrote this in Romans. He said, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that, that we will experience that's too powerful or strong or unexpected. To Jesus because he understands it all. I'm going to go here. I hate to say it. It's like the matrix. If you've ever seen the movie, we see what's happening here. And Jesus is in the details and the code behind the screen. Why would we turn towards smaller gods like money or success or even to ourselves for wisdom and understanding when we can place our trust in Jesus and walk in relationship with him? Who knows everything? So 
We need to trust him. Number two, we also need to thank Jesus for what he does because he's always working on our behalf. So his connection is not just a one and done kind of thing. He's ongoing. He's actively working for us right here and now. This is how Colossians says it, verse 17. He, Jesus, is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church, the beginning, and the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. I love this. By him all things hold together. He's active, right? Actively engaged. And if you're following him, that talks about he's also the head of the body of the church. Those are his followers. If you're following Jesus, he's working for you, for your good, taking responsibility for you. Hebrews 7 says it like this. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. So he puts us in a right relationship with God, brings us into his kingdom, and then continues to serve as our forever intermediary, our forever intercessor. And here's the thing, I think, I think this should be life-changing, right? Depending on your background, kind of where you come from, you might be out there going, hey man, I, I just feel like, like God is keeping track of stuff just maybe to punish me, like what, how does this work? You know, there's a, a huge study that was done by a sociologist where he, he did thousands and thousands of interviews with people, um, the majority of whom said that they were walking with Jesus, they'd made the decision to follow Jesus. And they were just asking them questions about what they thought about life, what they thought about God. And as they put the pieces together, what they saw was the majority of people believed that God was not actively involved in their day-to-day lives, right? That, that the universe, that their existence was something where he kind of just, he kind of just uh, winds it up like a watch. I'm sorry, charges it like a watch. And then lets it run, right, where he steps back. I think this is so sad, right? Isn't it any wonder that there's like, there's despair. There's anxiety. Maybe this is your experience. Maybe you've wondered, why would you want to connect to a God who doesn't seem to make a difference anyway? I mean, you know, you can do, you're good with the big guy upstairs thing, but you're like, where is this? Where's this connection? But, But the Bible is telling us that Jesus is always working actively to take care of us. Even when life doesn't look like what we would choose, we can trust that he's working behind the scenes. We're not abandoned. Which is why the Bible tells us in 1 Peter to give our worries to him. It says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on him because he cares about you. When we walk in a relationship with Jesus, we're cared for, right? We're loved. And when we understand this, it helps us remember to be thankful, right? We need to be thankful. Now, gratitude is, uh, is amazing because gratitude is actually uh, called a, an emotion that's an upward spiral, right? It means that as we increase our sense of gratitude, guess what? Our sense of gratitude increases. It's kind of self-feeding. That when we focus on being grateful, it brings a whole host of other things with it. So uh, increases a sense of contentment. 
increases our ability to be flexible and creative as we think things through. Um, facilitates coping with stress and adversity. And I love this, increases our ability to feel good as we look to the future. What? You mean human beings are created to have a, a certain emotional response that's gonna find its fulfillment when we turn to our creator? So are you living in thankfulness because of all that Jesus is doing for you, that he's working on your behalf? Then finally for today, number three, we need to treasure the peace that Jesus gives us because it's his sacrifice that makes it possible. I like the word treasure because it reminds me that Jesus' sacrifice is immeasurable. The eternal divine one sacrificing himself. It's expensive. It's worth everything. This is how Colossians says it. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Because Jesus is eternal and divine, he is the only means to solve our problem where we can be made right with God forever, which allows us to experience the peace that he created us to experience. And although it's, it's offered freely to us, right? We treasure it because we know how costly it is. Obvious to everyone who is around Jesus, I, this uh, passage right here in Matthew, the centurions are there when Jesus gives up his life. Look what they said. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake, the things that had happened, they were terrified and said this man really was God's son. Terrified. The cost was tremendous. And actually his whole life here on earth for us, think about it, it's, it's woven with sacrifice. Think of all the, the sacrificial choices, even here in the Christmas story. Ladies, would you enjoy riding on a donkey for days in labor? Hmm? No, I don't think so. Guys, would you want the stress, the pressure, the responsibility of trying to make sure you're taking care of your wife. I, I mean, I imagine that when they pulled into the town, you know, Mary goes, hey, so like, did the reservations go through? And Joseph's like, reservations, what? Right? Stressful. Even the uh, shepherds, I think, the tremendous uh, sacrifice that they, I mean, they're out there, right? They've got their job to do. They get freaked out, basically, by the appearance of all these angels who start shouting their praise to God, but it's still shouting. Come into the city, barge in to the barn to see what the angels had promised, right? Sacrifice, cost, is all throughout the life of Jesus in his earthly ministry. And when he laid down his life, he fulfilled God's plan that had been woven to our universe from its creation. This is in Romans chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because we have now received this reconciliation through him. It is not a cheap grace. So that we can experience the peace that he wants us to have. This is in John 14. Jesus said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace that I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled 
or afraid. We treasure it because an eternal Jesus offers us eternal peace. So this is where we end up. Uh, What Isaiah prophesied about, the eternal source, it came true in Jesus. And what that means for us is, yeah, we can trust, right? Because he's woven everything together. We can thank him with gratitude because we know that he's always working on our behalf. And then we can treasure the sacrifice that he made because of the peace that it brings. So Jesus can do all of these things, but we still have to make the choice to be the ones to step into that relationship. Because the question is not, you know, who is Jesus? The question is, who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to you? I think about it kind of like uh, Christmas. You know, no judgment here. We're probably all going to decorate our houses at some point in some way. I don't know if you, you know, if you use a Festivus pole, whatever it is, but we're going we're gonna to decorate our houses at some point. At some point, there will be presents that will show up, right? Now, what would you think if somebody came over and they looked at the presents like, man, those, those are so beautiful. Look at this, all the, all the wrapping matches. Like, look at the crisp corners. I, you can tell my wife does the packing. I can never get crisp corners, right? Look at this. This is gorgeous. These look awesome. Look at how many there are. What if someone went over there and looked at they, they appreciated them and then just walked away, never opened them. I mean, the potential, it's all right there, right? But they, they never go to that next step. What a, what a waste. I mean, isn't that where some of us, we can end up sometimes? We say things like, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I can kind of see about Jesus. It, it, it kind of makes sense, but you know, or we say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I know this one guy, like his life was completely changed. Like he started following Jesus, but I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I guess I can see how that could work. But, and we just leave all that he has, all that he is, all that he wants to bring, and we just leave it sitting there. My God. If you're hesitant today, you know, maybe your background, I don't know. Maybe there's stuff going on in your life. You might be hesitant, you go, "Ah, you know, I don't know. Well, I think it's, I think I I love how Jesus deals with, with folks who have questions. Because let me tell you, he can handle it, really, honestly. He can. Bring what you got, get it settled. I, you know, we see this with Thomas, one of, his, one of his guys, one of his disciples. Jesus shows up after the resurrection, shows up in the room, talks to all the guys. Thomas is not there, right? You know, Thomas comes back and the guys are like, you and I believe this. He's like, you're right, I don't, yeah, no. Mm-mm. Says some pretty strong stuff like, hey, I'm not moving, not going to make a choice, not going to do it. Don't believe what you said. Pretty intense. And Jesus shows up. This is in John 20. Jesus comes in, he says, peace with you. Then he says to Thomas, hey, quoting what Thomas had said, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Just believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Now, know what Thomas did not do? What did Thomas not do? 
Didn't have to do any of it. What we need is to get face-to-face with Jesus. What we need is to get in the room with Christ. If you're struggling, if you're trying to figure it out, get face-to-face with Jesus. In prayer, that's all you do. Say, hey, look, Jesus, I want to know. I want to get to know you more. I want to know who you really are. Please help me. That's all it is. Get face-to-face for a conversation. If you're in here, you know what? Grab a staff person. Absolutely. Talk to a person. Maybe there's someone you know from work or in your family, somebody you know that's walking with Christ. Just go, hey, I'm trying to figure all of this stuff out. I've got some questions. You can send a text, whatever you want to do. But here's what I'm saying. The forever Jesus is waiting to take care of you now and on into eternity. So don't wait. Let's pray.